Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 31, Deja Vu, All Over Again. First, as always, I really want to thank all of our new Patreon supporters. Rexter Chambers, someone who goes by eh, Georgi Kodinov, and Dan Klamer. Um, now, maybe it's just the holiday spirit, but you guys have been pledging a lot lately, and that means a ton to me. I really noticed a big difference uh, in the amount of pledges, and that's helping out a lot over here. In fact, just the other week, I finally paid off the last of my debt for my bachelor's and master's degrees in history. So, in small part, that was thanks to your help. So, huge, huge thank you to all you guys for donating. And anyone else, if you're feeling particularly generous in the Christmas spirit, jump on in. So, into today's episode. It's now 1095. The People's Crusade is being picked apart by carrion birds in the mountains and valleys of Anatolia, either massacred wholesale or picked off by the Seljuks one by one. But that was only the beginning. Or perhaps even the beginning of the beginning. Wheels had been set in motion which were ultimately going to shape the history of the Byzantines, Bulgaria, and all of Europe. Alexios knew they were coming. A proper crusade. An army of European mounted knights, some of the finest warriors in the world. These were no peasants as the previous crusade had been. These were wealthy men, wealthy men who wanted salvation, who wanted the Holy Land in European and Christian hands. The Byzantines were now more prepared to receive them than when those first four armies arrived at, when the first four armies arrived at the gates of Constantinople in the fall of 1096. For the next several months, army after army came to the gates, ultimately adding up to maybe 30,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry. Alexios was undoubtedly a bit relieved that this new army had a lot more discipline than the last one. But he was still very, very suspicious. More so knowing that Bohemond, the son of Robert Gascard, who had helped spearhead his father's invasion of the Balkans just over a decade previously, was there. Now there are rumors that Bohemond was even planning to convince the army to attack Constantinople itself. So, unsurprisingly, the army was not allowed in the city gates. As with the People's Crusade, Alexios wanted this army transported to Asia and out of his hair as quickly as possible. If they could deal a few blows to the Seljuks, all the better. To this end, Alexios devised a deal for the Crusaders. If they swore fealty to him, he would not only transport them, but supply them with food and whatever other provisions they might need. In exchange, they would give any land they took from the Seljuks to the Byzantines. It was a tense moment. Some violence had already broken out between the Crusaders and the people of Constantinople. But ultimately, one by one, all the Crusader, Crusader leaders swore the oath. The one who didn't, well, there was one who didn't, 
he just pledged that he would not cause any harm to the Empire. So, with everything taken care of, Alexios gave them the best advice on how to defeat Seljuk armies, along with two of his best generals, and brought them across the Bosphorus in the spring of 1097. There, they actually met Peter the Hermit, one of the very few men who had survived that previous crusade. Now, their first target was that critical, famous city of Nicaea. This city, once perhaps the most important one in the area for the Byzantines, had been captured in 1081, and was now the capital of the Seljuk state, known as the Sultanate of Rum, ruled by Sultan Kili Arslan I. Now, the Sultan honestly wasn't very worried about these crusaders. That first crusader army had been crushed by him pretty easily. However, he didn't quite realize this new army was a very different beast than the last. More professional, better led, better equipped. So when the crusaders arrived, well, Arslan was campaigning against some other Turkish tribe off in the east. As a result, they were able to quickly lay siege to the well-defended city. Almost immediately, the defenders, around 10,000 men plus the city garrison, made a small attack and were repulsed, losing about 200. It wasn't a decisive engagement, but it was enough for them to know that this siege was a lot more serious than anything the last Crusader army had ever done or was capable of doing. So Nicaea sent word to Arslan for help. He arrived within a week. The Sultan arrived with his own soldiers, and the resulting brutal battle lasted long into the night. But ultimately, the Crusaders prevailed. It was a major victory for them and horrified the defenders of Nicaea. But the city, well, it still wasn't taken. Armies had been defeated, but those walls still stood. So now, the real siege began. The Crusaders constructed towers and began sending sappers to undermine the walls with tunnels. A month later, clearly feeling it was now actually worth his time, Alexios arrived and camped nearby to lend his aid in the siege. He quickly helped blockade the lake on which Nicaea sits, cutting the city off from its last source of outside food and communication. But that wasn't the only part of Alexios' plan. He also sent two commanders and 2,000 troops on boats through the lake to secretly negotiate the surrender of the city and then maybe he forgot to tell the other crusaders about it. So, it's hardly surprising that the city was suddenly willing to surrender. It may have had impressive walls, but the sultan had abandoned it, its leader had abandoned it, and it really didn't have any hope of getting any outside help. So when Alexios arrived with terms, they were ready to talk. So Nicaea talked. Just after a month from the beginning of the siege, it was taken by the Byzantines, who staged a storming of the walls for the watching crusaders to make it look as if they had suddenly taken the city by force. But, well, it was all out of Greek theater. Now, you shouldn't be shocked to learn that this ruse was fairly quickly discovered. I mean, it's always been hard to keep a secret, and shutting up an entire city and an army, well, that was never likely to happen. And you could probably also guess that the crusaders were furious. They had planned to plunder Nicaea for food and supplies, which they could then carry on to the Holy Land. But now, the undamaged and unplundered city was safely in Byzantine hands. In fact, 
the Crusaders were actually forbidden from entering the city in groups larger than ten. So, they were shut out of a city that they had helped to conquer. Now, Alexios tried to ease the tensions by giving the Crusaders some money, some supplies, some horses. Uh, but to make matters worse, the new Byzantine commander of the city also refused to let the Crusaders leave until all of them, and this time he meant all, had sworn that same oath to Alexios and offer, uh, he had offered them when they were outside of Constantinople. So really, you could put your kind of self in their shoes here. The Crusaders are really unhappy with this whole situation, but what other choice do they have? Eventually, they all swear the oath, and they are allowed to move on their way, newly supplied. But in spite of all these setbacks, the Crusaders are actually feeling pretty confident at this point. Uh, now, at this point, I'm also going to step a little back on the detail. Uh, so, not going into all the detail about this crusade, they get further in a, into Anatolia in the Middle East, and yeah, so in short, about a month after their victory at Nicaea, they win the Battle of Dorleum against the same Sultanate of Sultan of Rum, and they defeated him again. So this meant that the Byzantines managed to retake much of Western Anatolia, a huge gain for the empire. As you'll recall, this is vital territory in terms of taxes and population. At the same time, while those crusaders are progressing, Alexios's head general, John Ducas, is hard at work retaining islands from Tsachas of Smyrna, the man you'll recall before who uh, the Byzantines fought against, uh, so in the Aegean and the Mediterranean, they're retaking islands. During this time, Byzantine forces under his command, they retook the islands of Chios, Rhodes, Smyrna, Ephesus, Sardis, and Philadelphia. Taken together, the Byzantines now had secured their rule in the Balkans, nearly the entire Aegean and western Mediterranean islands, and nearly all of Anatolia. Really, this is a remarkable turnaround from the situation just a few decades earlier. Meanwhile, the Crusaders had come all the way to Antioch, the greatest city of the region. It was so large that their army couldn't even fully surround it. During the siege, a Saxon fleet arrived with even more soldiers and supplies, a well-needed respite. So the resulting siege, it eventually lasted about eight months, during which time the Crusaders had to fight off two Turkish relief armies. But also around this time, well, squabbles are developing between the Crusader leaders. A Christian sense of mission may have unified them in the beginning, but it seemed like that alone was not going to overcome their senses of nationality and, uh, let's say, individual vain glory. So they did eventually take Antioch, but the fact that a Byzantine force had failed to help them, well, they believe this relieved them of their oaths, that their oaths to the emperor were now invalid. So they've been fighting between each other. They managed to resolve those fights well enough to take the city, but they now believed, eh, we don't owe anything to the Byzantines. They didn't help us. They can kind of all go, yeah, go to, go to hell. We, we don't need a word from them. So they kept wasting time, though. Once they took Antioch, this didn't exactly resolve their disagreements. Time was lost to arguments, and right on time, plague broke out and killed many, many people in the army. Eventually, Bohemond was left out, was left there to be Prince of Antioch while the rest of the Crusaders moved on. So, I'm sure the Byzantines are just delighted that the Crusaders have renounced their oaths to the Byzantine Emperor and put a enemy of the Empire, Bohemond, who had fought them so recently, in charge of the biggest city in the region. 
things are not looking so rosy all of a sudden for Alexios. It's now 1099, and, well, let's just say these crusaders are really eager to take Jerusalem. They thought it would go much faster than this. That June, they actually finally arrived. But now they face this brutal environment. There was no easy access to food and supplies while they were outside of Jerusalem, on top of the fact that the Fatimids, not the Seljuks and other Turks they had fought until now, were now ready to fight them. So they had a brand new enemy who they had to learn how to fight. And icing on the cake is that 3,500-man army, which left Constantinople two years earlier, is now about a third of that size and is less united than ever in spite of having actually reached Jerusalem. But in spite of all this, they prepared for an assault on the city. While they're doing this, they heard that a Fatimid relief army is en route from Egypt. So it's now or never. They really need to take Jerusalem before that army arrives. So they make their main assault, and the city actually fell on July 15th, 1099. The West's dream of retaking Jerusalem, just like that, was achieved. But, it should be clear, the city was not retaken for the Byzantines. These crusaders had no obligations there, and had the city for themselves. Now, the Byzantines had Anatolia, uh, everything up more or less up until Antioch. So think modern Syria and below is belongs to the Crusaders themselves. They decide to set up the Kingdom of Jerusalem with Godfrey of Bouillon, a Frankish knight, as its first king. Now, it seems like this is, you know, a grand triumph. Everything's going awesome, but there's still a lot of problems. The troubles are not over because that Fatimid army I just mentioned that was heading from Egypt, well, it's between 20 and 50,000 men strong, and it's still on its way. So, the new king Godfrey had to send what remained of his army to meet them. This is just over 10,000 soldiers. So, even at the lowest estimates, they're looking at a 2 to 1 disadvantage on unfamiliar ground against an, uh, an enemy they've never fought. Yet, remarkably, the Crusaders actually managed to surprise the Fatimids in their camp and defeat them securing a pretty stable position for their new kingdom. And this is a hugely important victory, sort of a you know, victory grasped from the jaws of defeat. So everything's going great, but within a year, Godfrey dies and he's succeeded by his brother Baldwin, but still not the end of the world. Oh, but the problems of the Crusaders, they're really only beginning. Most of them went home after the successful capture of Jerusalem. They're Holy mission was successful, they had land and families to tend to back home, and considering the Crusaders only had about 10,000 soldiers at this point, before those people left and went back to Europe, this new state may have won against the Fatimids, but they are very dangerously exposed. They have very few soldiers. So within two years, in 1101, another Crusader army is sent to assist them. Now this crusade is pretty humorously called the Crusade of the Faint-Hearted, because many of its participants were the people who had refused to go on the first crusade or left before it concluded. One group on this was a bunch of Lombards from Milan who managed to pillage Byzantine lands on their way to the Holy Land, eventually even getting inside Constantinople and pillaging a bit there. So, as usual, Alexios is trying to get all these ruffians over to Anatolia and out of his hair as quickly as possible. But still, the good news for the Crusader states is that reinforcements are on their way. Eventually, all these reinforcements gather at Nicomedia and are even joined by a group of Pechenic mercenaries under Byzantine command, 
Yes, that's right. The Pachinigs have managed to sneak into the story just another time. But before all of them move on to Jerusalem, they decide that they need to go on a rescue mission. Because Bohemond has managed to get himself captured by the Turks. How embarrassing. Poor Bohemond. He just can't seem to do anything right. Totally screwed up the invasion of the Balkans. Yeah, he managed to become Prince of Antioch, but now he's gotten himself captured. Just life is not working out for this guy. So this new army marches in his direction, capturing more Anatolian territory and giving it to the Byzantines. So good for them. More good news. As they approach the territory of the Turkish kind of tribe who had captured Bohemond, the various Turkish tribes in the region, including the Seljuks, slowly realize that this is actually a pretty serious threat, and they decide to unite and attack these crusaders as one. All these armies met at Merzifon, Merzifon, probably, in north-central Anatolia. The battle, no, it was a disaster. It lasted several days and proved that these foreigners were really just no match for the Turks on their own soil. The Pachinigs deserted, most of the crusaders were killed or captured, with only a few escaping, and some small numbers did kind of get away and make their way to Jerusalem, but this army was more or less destroyed, and the promise of significant reinforcements for the kingdom of Jerusalem didn't work out. Still, some territory was regained for the Byzantines, so that's nice. But back to that question, what on earth happened to Bohemond? He was still captured. Well, Alexios is pretty angry uh, that he had ever left Antioch to begin with because this violated an agreement they had. But, well, Alexios was willing to get over it because he offered to pay a lot of money to get Bohemond back. So there were some squabbling, some disagreements, talk about money and the ransom. And eventually Bohemond was actually ransomed by another European leader of another crusader state, Baldwin of Edessa. And he was returned to Antioch. But in Bohemond's absence, his nephew had taken over and actually began fighting the Byzantines to expand the territory of this new Antioch-based uh, crusader state. So the Byzantine domination of the region seems pretty well over. They're being fought by Bohemond and his nephew. Ugh, it's just a mess for them. Well, okay, they regained some territory in Anatolia, but everything is just getting even more complicated. Unsurprisingly, the Crusaders are not the most loyal of allies. Things are messy. Alexios, he's now working with some Crusader states to try to check the expansion of Bohemond and Baldwin's growing Crusader states. So he's, it's a usual Byzantine tactic, right? Balance your enemies against each other. In 1104, Bohemond returned to Europe to gather more soldiers for all this fighting. Once he was there, he was pretty famous. He had helped take Antioch. He'd been a part of the Crusades. So he's got some, well, let's say some PR power. And he uses it to marry the daughter of France. And he returns with 34,000 soldiers to further protect and expand the Crusader presence in the Holy Land. Just kidding. That didn't happen. No, he did marry the daughter of the, the King of France. He did get 34,000 soldiers. He just didn't do it to go help the Crusader states. He used them to attack Alexios and the Byzantines. So, for the second time in three decades, the Normans were invading the Balkans, literally at the same point. It was, in the immortal words of Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again. They, as I just mentioned, even invaded at the same spot. They went from southern Italy and focused their attack on Dyrrhachium. Poor little Dyrrhachium, always getting besieged by the darn Normans. But, as you'll probably recall, 
Taking that fortress at Dyrrhachium, well, it's not so easy. And Alexios had proven himself time and time again to be a very clever strategist. So instead of engaging in a pitch battle, Alexios held back, biding his time, waiting for time, plague, and the Venetian navy to do their work on these pitiful little Normans and their little army. And they did. Soon enough, Bohemond's army was ravaged with plague, cut off from supplies, and couldn't escape because the Venetian navy was blocking them. Bohemond's backers saw this disaster and withdrew their support, and he was forced to sue for peace. The result was the Treaty of Devil in 1108. The treaty had Bohemond become a vassal of Alexios, with additional provisions stating that the territory, his territory, would be fully absorbed by Byzantium upon his death. So that means the Byzantines were set to get Antioch, which would have been a huge victory for them. He also had to pay an annual tax to the empire, fight for the empire, and try to expand the territory of the empire. This may seem pretty harsh, but really, Bohemond was lucky Alexius didn't take his head off, considering all the trouble this guy had caused. But clearly the emperor knew that taking Antioch by force would have been an enormous undertaking, and getting it by treaty was a lot of an, much of an easier option. Frankly, this says a lot about Alexios as a man concerned with results over revenge. Now, sadly for him, Bohemond dies three years later in 1111 in Sicily, where his nephew uh, and his nephew, who had been ruling Antioch again uh, in his absence, eh, didn't really feel like honoring the treaty. So, after all this work, repelling the invasion, negotiating the treaty, all of it turns into a big pile of nothing. Things more or less go back to where they were when they started. Still, the Balkans have been defended yet again, and Alexios could focus on defending his newly reconquered Anatolian territories from the Seljuks. So, that's good news. And he was actually pretty successful there. Though, eventually, he does actually get tired of staying on the defensive and decides to try to attack the Celtics to expand his Anatolian territories, which really says a lot about his confidence of his position in the Balkans. We'll get to that in a minute. So it's now, you know, Alexios personally, he's now in his 60s, but I don't know, he's feeling sprightly and he decides that he's going to lead this uh, offensive campaign against the Celtics personally. So his army moves through Anatolia, conquering Christian inhabited territories from the Seljuks and generally kind of playing the role of the great liberators. When a Seljuk army finds them, the Seljuks were initially a bit confused because the Byzantines were using a new formation which was allegedly divided by Alexios himself specifically to combat the battle formations of these Turkish nomads. Though they start, not a lot of happens on the first day, the Seljuks are a bit confused, but by the second day, attacks and counterattacks had begun in earnest, and one of the sons of Alexios was killed. Still, the Byzantines managed to turn the tide and nearly capture the sultan of the opposing army. This loss and subsequent treaty was humiliating enough for the sultan that he was soon deposed, blinded, and murdered by his brother. Yeah, clearly these, these kind of Seljuk uh, tribal societies are not great places to lose. But still, this kind of opens the door for a full Byzantine reconquest of Anatolia. But still, that's going to have to wait. Because Alexios died the very next year in 1118. And at this moment, at the death of Alexios, I want to take a moment to look back on some of the events that were happening in the Balkans in the last 20 years of his reign that didn't really fit neatly into the narrative. So briefly, 
I want to mention that for the last 20 years, Alexios had been spending a lot of efforts brutally putting down the Bogomil and Paulician heresies in Bulgaria and throughout the Balkans. So at the same time, in all these wars in the Western Balkans and Anatolia with the Crusaders are raging, um, Alexios has his soldiers and some of his men capturing people and trying to kind of you know, torture them and hold them prisoner until they reveal the identities of Bogomil and Paulician leaders, right? They're playing hardball. They want to know who's leading these movements, who's against the uh, the Byzantine kind of orthodox uh, system, and how can we kill them? But still, besides that, Bulgarian lands are pretty quiet for this period. I mean, yeah, this, this uh, anti-Bogomil and Paulician events are going on, but those are more or less concentrated in small groups of people. Besides crusader armies passing by a couple times, things are pretty quiet. So the main question is, is all that quietness going to lead to an opportunity for anti-Byzantine forces to gather their strength? Or is it going to be a chance for the Byzantines to further their hold on Bulgarian lands? Well, we're going to have to see. Next time, we're going to look at where Alexios's eldest son and heir, John II Komnenos, is going to take the empire. Is he going to continue the success of his father? Is he going to keep kind of fighting uh, to put down these heresies in the Balkans? Are there going to be more invasions of the Balkans? Uh, what's going to happen in the Seljuks? What's going to happen in the Crusader states? Well, let's just say the Byzantines have a lot of balls up in the air right now. So you can look forward to that by right around New Year's, right at the end of the month. In the meantime, as always, this episode is written by me, Eric Halsey, and produced by Lance Nelson. The theme music is written and performed by Teddy Raven. Please like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes, donate on Pat- or pledge on Patreon, all that good stuff. You know what to do. And you can listen to us on SoundCloud, check out the Bulgarian Now podcast, and yeah, generally get in touch if you'd like to say hi, say thanks, have a question, whatever it is. I'm always listening. In the meantime, as always, Uspech, or in English, good luck.